HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Meet and Three is back. We're kicking off our fourth season and celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary with a very special episode about our home, Brooklyn. Roberta's was such an interesting place with such a strong gravitational pull and attracted all these different groups. The neighborhood has changed a lot over the past decade from its culinary renaissance to the complicated implications of gentrification. I would say the majority of the people who are members of our co-op definitely have a certain purchasing power, are mostly white, and we are trying to change that. We're taking you on a journey that spans the birthplace of food radio to buzzy neighborhood pollinators to the transformative health journey of our borough president. That was my moment of, you know, wow, someone has thrown me a life raft and I'm going to take it. Subscribe to Meet in 3, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is John Raytek. We'll talk to John about Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Coastal Sonoma, his other properties, and Ceritas. We'll taste the Ceritas Pinot Noir for our weekly wine sip. I'm Sam Ben-Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Pennsylvania-born John Raytek. Ray Tech uh, worked his way through wine, eventually uh, fueling his interest and making his way to New Zealand before making his way back to the States. John headed west, working with and at some of the best wineries and people in California before starting Ceritas, his own winery with his wife, Phoebe, in Healdsburg, California. Welcome to the Grape Nation, John. Thank you for having me, Sam. All right, John, you have a lot going on in your life, and I need people to understand how you got here. So without taking the whole day, um, give me a little background on your journey in life and wine 
that got you presently to your own winery, Ceritas? That's a great place to start. I think the, the background's important to us. It, I was born in Pennsylvania, and I grew up uh, across the street from a hotel called the Nittany Line Inn that was on the Penn State campus. My father ran the hotel for 23 years, and as a kid uh, who walked to and from school, uh, after school every day, I would I would walk home and I'd call my dad from the house and and uh, he would walk me across the the busy road there and I'd I'd hang out in the hotel and uh, my dad was very busy so he he enjoyed getting rid of me and so I would do things you know at an early age like peeling carrots or cutting onions or washing pots and pans and what what it did for me though is it it really exposed me to the food and beverage industry. Um, specifically around the kitchen. I you know, was obviously not that interested in hotels, but um, had a lot of time around food. You know, I went to Penn State University, uh, graduated uh, in the early, uh, the mid-90s, and went to work for uh, some Relay and Chateau properties. Uh, first, I, I worked at the Inn of Little Washington, Virginia. Kind of a in multidisciplinary role, like around wine, purveyor management, working directly with Chef Patrick O'Connell. And it further deepened my experience around food and wine and how wine worked, you know, worked into the, the enjoyment of food at the dining table. And then soon after that, I, I decided that it was, it was time for maybe a kind of a change um, for no particular reason, and I was hired by the Little Nell in Aspen, Colorado. At the time, uh, Bobby Stuckey was the uh, wine director there. Bobby kind of took me under his wing. He already had a fleet of sommeliers, but the experience I got there, you know, continued the food of, and you know, my food, ex you know, learning about food, but but my wine knowledge really deep in there. Um, we tasted tons and tons of wine. Part of what the, year is this? This Just is so uh, 1998. Okay, keep going. And uh, the other thing that we were exposed to there was um, we were also there was the little now was kind of involved in buying wine for people's private sellers. So we were tasting a lot of different wines for people's private sellers, trying to ascertain whether that was a good fit for them, and or was was the wine you know, holding up with age. And so I was exposed to, you know, anywhere from 20 to 50 different bottlings a day, mm. which, um, as your listeners know, and, and people in our industry know that the more you taste, the better you, you know, better you get at it and your skills are honed and sharpened and your mind is, is very attuned to what's going on in the wine. Uh, after and, and you had the access. And Not everyone the has the access to taste and, <laughs> great and, stuff like that. And, and tasting great stuff, as you say, the access to great stuff that you're not paying for. Right. Um, so that's very important. Yeah, it's a good thing. Um, so I worked with, uh, at the Now um, until uh, 2000. And I moved to Australia and uh, worked um, at a couple of restaurants that are now out of business there, um, unfortunately. And at some point, my work visa expired, 
and I needed to leave the country. <laughs> and I was told that the most expeditious way to, to kind of get it renewed was to go to New Zealand, post up at the consulate, and, uh, and kind of work through the paperwork of my immigration attorney. So, uh, well, I was told it was going to be five days. Well, it was five weeks. <laughs> and this was a kind of a, pivot, a pivotal moment in my life. Um, I was in Auckland. Uh, you know, after three or four days, I didn't find Auckland particularly interesting to keep visiting or traveling around. And somebody told me about this beautiful island off the coast of New Zealand called Wahiki Island. And I took a ferry to Waikiki Island, and um, it was not made known to me at the time, but it was the Waikiki Island Food and Wine Festival, <laughs> which I didn't have a reservation to stay, and I was on the last ferry of the day. And uh, I was stuck, and I met a, a young man who drove me out to a place called Miro Vineyard on Onatangi Bay, and I rolled up to this property, and he, he had informed me there was a guest house there, and I stayed at this guest house for five weeks. <laughs> and while I was there, the Vosper family put me up. They were incredibly generous to me. And Is that the winery family? They are the they, owners they of were Miro. The, right. Yeah. And they had a food chef background, and they uh, just kind of took me in, so to speak. I didn't leave the property much. They... They showed me a couple other wineries, other areas of the island, and they were insistent on just hosting me um, without charging me. And I was a little uncomfortable with that because, you know, I, I try to be that person who <laughs> takes care of their business properly. And so I, I went outside one day and Kat was uh, pruning. And I said, how can I help you? not knowing anything about pruning. And she said, well, you can burn the canes. And so I would huff these canes up to the top of the hill and I'd burn them in these, these kind of small fires at the top of the vineyard. And slowly over the weeks, you know, she, she would share one more nugget of information with me and then one other piece and I was hooked. I, I loved the vineyard. I loved working out in the vineyard. And they didn't have enough work to really bring someone like me, especially a novice, on online. And I went back to Australia, worked in the Yarra Valley for a master of wine. His name is Martin Williams. And we, 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 it was a custom crush environment. So I saw fruit from not only the Yarra Valley, but Geelong and Macedon Ranges and Kunawara and Adelaide Hills. People were bringing fruit that far to be made because Martin was um, pretty well known at the time. And so I was exposed to just a tremendous amount of varietals and regions and techniques and uh, thought processes all the way from artisanal handmade one, two barrel lots to, you know, tanks with 5,000 gallons of juice in them. So it, it was a real deep dive into to winemaking and it was an incredible experience. Um, after working there, I, I, I decided that I really wanted to return to the U.S. How much time did you put in there? I was there for a year. 
It was about a year. Nine months to a year. And of the year when you started pruning and schlepping the canes, what was that? A few months into it, right away. So you were you were working, kind of the wine thing most of the time, right? I, w- I was I was more on the restaurant side before that. Before. But yeah, the the, the cane uh, working at the vineyard with Mira was merely just a couple weeks. It was okay. Yeah, um, but it it was. It sounds like it sh- like you said it changed. It changed. It's a point where definitely my life took a turn. That uh, that was the moment. That was or the that moment. was the period where you knew. Um, did you know that it was wine making or wine or? What, what, I, I didn't what, know. I, I just uh, I, I grew up being outside as a as a as a kid. You know the forest. The, the, the creeks, the rivers, fly fishing with my dad. These were all part of my life. Inside was not my life. And so the being outside in the vineyard really appealed to me after having been working 60, 70 hours a week inside of a restaurant environment, um, putting a suit on every day and you know being inside of a dimly lit room and you know, I, I realized, I think, at that moment how much I missed being outside. And I also was very much intrigued to just kind of, you know, follow that thread and see where it went. Um, I didn't really have many commitments, and I wasn't, you know, a father at the time. And right. I could, I could kind of do what I wanted. <laughs> Come and go. So, um, you know, when I went down to the Yarra Valley, I, I was exposed like I said, to a lot of different techniques and whatnot, varietals. And I, and I kind of learned over that, that was nine months that I was there, nine months a year, that kind of what interested me and what didn't interest me. Um, and what interested me, what caught my attention was more of the smaller vineyard um, uh, operations and also the expression of site-specific wines. And to be able to make, taste, and see a wine evolve from you know, multiple different vineyards, let's say from either Chardonnay or Pinot Noir, was incredibly fascinating to me. And w- while I had been selling wine, while I had been around wine, pouring wine, tasting wine, uh, the, there was no context to, to why. Right. Right. This it was gave acad- you context. It was academic. So studying, you know, the difference between Clodebez and Chambertin or Mousini and Les Amours. So, but, but the, to see and taste and touch and feel that was something that was very new to me. And, and I, was, I was very much intrigued. I, I decided because of the challenges of immigration in Australia that I wanted to move back to California and uh, start start my next steps. So and let me just ask you one thing before we get California on. Um, Australian wine w- was doing very well then. I mean, it was they were making great wines. It was popular. They were getting recognition. Um, and then I think they fell into a period where they lost favor, of which I think right now they're getting it back. A lot of what you're talking about is happening. Um, is that true? I mean, was there a time where Australia lost its mojo a little in the last five, eight, ten years? You know, I, I think I'm not the the best person to speak Just on it. Just from your perspective. But, 
you know, at the time that I was there, I felt like we were, we were working with some cutting edge vineyards. Um, we were exposed, you know, to a lot of these amazing wines that people revere from Australia, you know, the Bindis and, right. you know, Bass Phillip um, and uh, Gary Farr. And we, 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 we saw a lot of this fruit and um, it felt like I was somewhat in a bubble um, at times. And then, like I said, we'd have 5,000 gallons of Sauvignon Blanc over in a tank. Right. So, uh, you know, and, and those, to be honest, they, those didn't intrigue me so much because they, they felt like more wines a process than place. Right. And, um, not that they don't have their place in this world, of course, but, um, cause, cause making 250, 300 cases of a wine from a, from a vineyard that has meager soils and has very low yields is let's, let's, let's speak honestly about it. It's just not that profitable. So, um, and it can be challenging at times and, uh, you know, but, but I think in terms of, to your question about favor, it it seemed at the time that maybe, you know, this was also the rise of Chile. Um, you know, wines down there seemed like Malbec was taking off and it also seemed like, um, that the Australians and the Chileans and the South Africans were all fighting for positioning in, in the UK, which to me at the time, I had never visited from a professional business perspective. And so I, I had no idea, but that, that was my sense of it. Yeah. And today, I, I think there's um, some good friends there who are making wonderful wine, but yeah. it's, it's definitely a struggle. Yeah. It's definitely okay. a struggle to sell um, you know, 40, 50, $60 wine there Yeah, and abroad. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think, um, there's some good people making good wine and the recognition is, is coming back, you know, to those guys. All right. So you leave New Zealand, you get to California and what year is this and what happens? So when I was in the Yarra Valley, um, so as you know, the harvests are opposite. Right. So um, I, in 2001, uh, worked in the Yarra Valley, and Martin Martin's roommate, college roommate from UC Davis, uh, was a guy named Hugh Chappelle, who was the winemaker at Flowers in 2001. And he said, you should go work for Hugh. It would be a great experience for you. And uh, Hugh and I talked. It was not really an interview. And one of the things that I told him during our phone call about working at Flowers was that I was particularly interested in uh, not not being an intern in the traditional sense where you kind of, maybe you lock into one aspect of winemaking, pump overs or punch downs or running the press or grape, grape receival. And I said, I really want to only work with the Chardonnays. And I want to go to every pick, and I want to sample every vineyard. Why? I I think I think the way that my mind thinks is is much more in the the Japanese tradition of focusing on one thing over and over and over again until you get it right. And you know, I so I get that. 
why not Pinot Noir? Why Chardonnay? I mean, you said somewhere down the line, and I don't know if this plays into it, Chardonnay transmits, you know, the, I guess the terroir or the soil better than any grape. I mean, I don't know exactly how you said it, but is that fair or true? Yeah, I think Chardonnay... Did you know that then? or <laughs> I, I didn't know it then. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I was, uh, I was uh, 27, right? So you... And, I, you know, I was... I was just a young man looking for looking for answers. So did he yield to your uh, request? Did were you able to work just Chardonnay? He did, yeah. So okay. I and what it what it did for me was, and I was the only intern that that was given this. I think only because I asked. Okay. Um, not because the opportunity wasn't there for somebody else. And uh, so what I did was I I was engrossed in these twenty vineyards going to them, sampling them, watching them ripen, running the chemistry on them, and uh, really just keeping my mouth shut and learning at, at kind of at the feet of Hugh Chappelle and another uh, viticulturalist, his name's Greg Adams, who, who was also my boss then as well, and now he works, he's a consultant to Ceritas. So it's, a, it's kind of full circle for us. Um, but in that process, um, I pressed every Chardonnay, I barreled them all down, I monitored all the fermentations. And what I learned was just an incredible depth of information about clones, you know, how um, sugars and acidity play off of each other, the influence of new oak, wh from what forest, what cooper, um, you know, and I was just engrossed in that. I didn't Basically even... everything that entails what a wine tastes like after it's farmed and vintage. Exactly. Did, right. And I, I got, like you said, I got to go to those sites and I got to kick the, kick the dirt and rocks and go to every pick. And it was just this full immersion into a subject that just kind of stayed with me for a long time. I never looked at the Pinot Noir. I never even stood on the sorting table at, at Flowers Pinot Noir. And after harvest, so... <clears throat> Um, you know, after harvest, uh, Hugh came to me and he said, um, I have a job for you. It's not here, but it's, um, down in Sebastopol. And so I went down to Sebastopol and I worked with, um, a, a small crew down there. And one of the things that, that, that I got exposed to down there was, um, a guy by the name of Kevin Harvey came to visit and he asked if there was any young up and coming winemaking, you know, uh, people on the staff. And I was singled out and I went down to the Santa Cruz mountains and interviewed for a job that I was, that I really honestly was kind of unqualified for, but what was important was I knew the people to bring into the project. So we were in a remote location for Reese. R-H-Y-S, Reese. Right, exactly. And we were planting uh, vineyards in areas that were, that were remote. Nobody was there. There was no crews there. There was no winemaking facilities. A lot of slope side vineyards, right? A lot of steep slopes. Steep, steep slopes, yeah. Very steep. Yeah. And highly erodible soils. And so 
Um, we brought in Ted Lemon to consult for a short time. Quickly tell David, everyone who Ted is. Ted Lemon is the owner, winemaker with his wife, Heidi, um, of Literai Wines, which is in Sebastopol. And highly regarded highly at regarded. all levels. And uh, we brought in some folks from Napa, including David Abreu, uh, to help us establish vineyards from Abreu Vineyards. And they were kind of you know, at the forefront of hillside development, dealing with erosion control, these types of issues. And we had a, a biodynamic consultant by the name of Andrew Lorand. Uh, Andrew passed away two years ago, but um, he really um, put a lot of, um, he, he taught me a lot about biodynamic sustainable farming and focusing on the, the, the dirt and the plant health and the farm health. And he was also the consultant for Litterai at the so time. So up to that point, you were aware and maybe practicing, but he really solidified um, biodynamics and organics with you or, we, or we, next level or... Yeah, we, we were... The, the, the vineyard that we were establishing, vineyards that we were establishing, we were, we were just kind of... I would say we were approaching them from the soil standpoint, which is boilerplate organic. Right. Right. But Andrew really kind of tapped into a deeper level. And so I had this like consortium of consultants at my disposal. Good guys. Jesus. And it, it was basically like getting a couple PhDs at once. Um, again, kind of hearkening back to our conversation. For you. For me. Working side by side. Side by side. Yeah. And um, working with an owner who was very, very committed to making the best wine from that area um, and still is to this day. And um, it's, it's admirable what's, going, what's gone down there um, yeah. since, since I left. So I, I was there for a couple of years. I was very intense. I was a farmer. I Just go back. The couple of years you were there was at the very beginning of restarting or they were up and running a little by then? So just at the beginning. At the be you were there at the we, beginning. I made okay. the first commercial, commercially, uh, commercial Got it. vintage. Um, but, it, it, and I think, it, you know, it's interesting at the time, it, you know, I think most people want to see their product out there to get the recognition. But I was fully committed to just doing the job. You know, right. the job of establishing the vineyards, farming, doing the biodynamic practices, and learning. But you had all these great people around you. I mean, it was yes. sort of a joy, you know, to uh, attempt and approach all the things you had to do. Yeah, I felt I felt incredibly supported. But what I what I, I guess my point is is that I wasn't focused on you know promoting myself. I was interested in doing the work to get these vineyards established in their best way possible and to, to give them some legs for the future. And it didn't come without its pitfalls. It was the, the sites were challenging. They were rocky. They were, they were highly erodible. We, you know, we had, we had all kinds of um, challenges and steepness of slopes and budwood material. And, but, but, you know, at the time it can seem like a challenge, but it, now looking back, it, it was just this intense learning experience that I and and I was working six seven days a week. I was kind of isolated from the world, up on the mountain, just working and kind of 
dragging myself you don't, to you bed. don't mind that though no I entirely don't. <laughs> you're that kind of guy it's not like i gotta get out of here exactly it's like this is fun um all right so let's move a little quicker now get yep. me get me out of reese which is obviously a very very important you know time and uh point in your life the people you worked with you know getting them going what happens after that and get me to saratus so I, I moved to Sonoma County in 2004 after having worked for Reese since, you know, like the beginning of 02. And I, I took a, a, an assistant winemaking job with Copan. And in 2005, Phoebe and I decided that we wanted to start our own winery. Were you at Copan from then till you and Phoebe decided or anything? I else? worked for Copan from 2004 to 2010. Oh, okay. So wow. at the same That's time, Wells Guthrie. Yes, still at right? the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so in 2005, uh, Phoebe and I, um, we had this idea that we wanted to start a winery. Just for context, when did you and Phoebe get together? Started seeing each other? Eventually got married? How long did you know or when? Uh, we met in 2002. Okay. Yeah. And, so by and five, we, you'd been together a bunch of years. And, yeah, and we kind of saw each other on and off, but in 2003, we kind of okay. got together. So, you know, Phoebe at the time was 25, and here I am, this, you know, brash young man, and I said, hey, I need $10,000 from you, and I'm going to put in $10,000, and we're going to start this wine label. And... You know, at the time, it just seemed kind of like nothing. Um, but what you quickly learn is that things get real quick. And you have a business to run. You have grapes to buy. You you don't realize that you need an attorney. Are you pointing more towards the money gets burned a lot quicker or yeah. just everything else, too? Well, the money gets burned quickly. Yeah. The wine, you know, the, the wine business is um, in, like intensely high working capital needs. Right. You got to be capitalized. <laughs> yeah. And Phoebe and I, from the beginning, we, we just said that we are never going to take money from someone else. And we didn't want a partner and we didn't want an investor. And the reason we said that not, that, not that that couldn't be a good option, is that we really just wanted to focus on our work without compromise and our dedication to the wines. And the other commitment we had was to only grow the company when we felt that we could sell the majority of it direct to consumer because direct from the winery, because we felt that if we didn't do that based upon our knowledge, based upon information that was shared with me from other winery owners, that we wouldn't last very long. And so as we just a quick, why? If, if, you know, based on the model that you wanted to go mail order direct to consumer, if you didn't do it that way, it wouldn't last. Why? Because the, the area that we wanted to focus on was uh, high end grapes, which have a very, very high cost of entry. And if you sell that wine, let's say all through the distribution channel. Okay, so it's it's it's, it's fine. It's yeah. economics and all. It's, that. Economics, it's the best exactly. way for you to maintain what you want to do. Exactly. I got but it. we but we also didn't want to forget about my background, which was restaurants, my love of food, travel, and so our goal was always to sell you know um, the majority of it direct and the rest to restaurants. 
And so every time we reached this threshold point, we would grow. Um, Phoebe and I didn't pay ourselves for 10 years. <laughs> okay. We maintained full-time jobs. We rolled all the profits back into the company. The goal for us from the beginning till, you know, till where we are now was that at year 10, we wanted our own facility. In the year 20, we wanted to own 30% of our vineyards. And at year 30, we wanted to own 50 to 60% of our land. Where are we, closer to year 10 or past year 10? We're at year 14. 14. So, so we, you accomplish your year 10 goal. We built a winery at year 11. Right, We're right around there. Right around there. And we've now started to acquire some land, very long-term leases with you know opportunities to buy them later on. And you still, you still want to do that? You know, we still 14 years into it saying 20 years ago that in 20 years you want to own a chunk of the property. That's still a good plan for you? Yeah, I think we, you know, all winemakers want control. Of course. Right. You, you want to control that raw product. It's no different than, you know, a lot of the chefs these days have farms, right, outside of their restaurant. They want to, to be able to control the pr- produce that's coming into their restaurant and we want to do the same so let's talk about that so you grow wine in three different regions um like you said you contract to vineyards i think it's very important um who you deal with and where it is so talk to me about that tell me about the areas that you're growing what you're looking for and you know who you're looking for in a partner because that's the fruit and you're very obsessed, you know, with what comes out of the field and the fruit. So just, you know, tell me about that quickly. Yeah, so we we predominantly grow grapes in the West Sonoma Coast area. Um, roughly, like, 80% of our grapes come from that area. And then 20% um, moving forward is going to come from the Santa Cruz Mountains. Um, and what we look for is... Uh, we, we seek out older vines um, that have heirloom clones. And we also want working relationships with those vineyard owners and or leases or whatever the, the deal is that we strike. We, we basically want to get out of the field exactly what we would get out of the field if we owned it. And we only partner with people who are committed to that same goal. Is it hard? I mean, obviously, when you make the list of what you need, you start checking the boxes, a lot of different sites drop off. I mean, are they there, or you really have to search to find those? They're there, but 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 it's no different, Sam, than anything in life. It's about relationships, right? You know, many of our growers we don't have contracts with. But they think of us as family. Right. That's the best thing. You know, they, they, you know, they send you a gift when your children are born or <laughs> when something happens in your family that's tragic. They, 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 they call you and they, they're thoughtful. And so, but we always, it's, you know, life is always about what, getting the setup right. Right. You know, starting, um, not with the necessarily the dream, but starting with the, the, the fundamentals are what's going to create a long lasting relationship where you can get what you want out of that vineyard and put into a bottle of wine. Because at the end of the day, 
we're making wine for you. We're making wine for the people listening to this to this podcast. We're you know, and the right. sommeliers out in the community, they're the end critic, right? They're going to tell us if they like it or they don't. So, it's you know, our goal is to to do our best work in the field, and we communicate this to our growers. And the important thing that that makes that greases this whole thing is that you have the money to pay for it. And not only do you have the money to pay for maybe if you're buying by the ton or by the acre, but that you see the relationship a little bit in like 3D that, that, that you need to take into account their needs as well as our own. And it just doesn't help for wineries to just voice their own opinion and enforce that on a grower. I don't see growers as growers. I see them as partners. And so when we say, hey, we want all the wings removed in this block at Helenthal Vineyard today, and they say, well, that's going to cost $1,000, we write the check. We don't, we don't negotiate about it. Our end goal is to get the best fruit possible. And every year of farming requires ourselves, our interactions, our communications with those people to look at what, what's in front of us and determine what needs to be done to make the best it's, quality fruit. It's the best of all worlds for both sides. And exactly. um, I think one of the things we didn't mention is you practice organics and biodynamics. And obviously when you seek sites and partners, that's a critical thing, right? Yeah. So every, every site, um, you know, is different, right? So the, the currently the, the only site that's biodynamically farmed is Porter Bass. Um, and then everything else is organic or sustainable. Just so everyone knows Porter Bass, there's somewhat of a connection. Tell me quickly what it is. So my wife, Phoebe, um, uh, she is the daughter of Sue and Dirk Porter Bass. They established a a vineyard that was a, they reestablished a vineyard that had been abandoned in uh, 1980 after she moved from New Jersey as a three four month old child. So w- we, you know, we started in a good spot. Right, great spot. Yeah, um, she's got good uh, hybrid there. Um, John, we have to take a quick break. Um, I'm talking to John Raytech. John is the proprietor of Saratas uh, Vineyards in Healdsburg. We'll be right back. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Just live. 
back with my guest, John Raytek. John is the winemaker and co-owner with his wife, Phoebe, of Ceritas Vineyards. Um, all right, let's talk a little about the fact that, and I think you've described it, you're kind of an old soul in the sense that you're a traditional old world vineyard. You know, your, your practices... Um, kind of throw back to the way they do it in Europe and all of that. There's no new age crazy stuff here, maybe a little science. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think um, I, I spent a lot of time in Europe, specifically in Burgundy and Champagne and Chablis. And, and um, I, the thing that's most important to me is to respect the terroir and to respect the vintage. And um, what we have kind of tried to do over the years is to not allow um, production methods to get in the way of that um, and use time on you say production in the field and in the cellar or cellar? Mostly I'm referring to the cellar okay. at that point. Okay. Um, and we want to um, allow the wines just to speak for themselves. You know, our... Our work is, you know, a, a week for me is like 50% in the field, minimum. Um, I see all these vineyards at least, you know, once And you're the winemaker. And I'm the winemaker. <laughs> yeah. so. But it's all about the fruit. It's all about the fruit. And, you know, the, the, the winery is, you know, we, we may spend three, four full days a month there. I mean, it's just not a place that we need to be. Um, you know, we don't tinker with the wines. We don't. We don't mess with them. So there's no, there's no point in being there other than maybe to be in your office and, you know, having an office. Right. Day. So, you know, I'm always out in the field. Um, and I think this is incredibly important because not only does it allow me to interact with my grower partners on a regular basis, which keeps the relationship sound and solid and checking in and face to face communications, which is, you know, so lacking these days. Um, with technology and everything, but it um, allows me to watch the grapes grow and to react, to change a course of action that maybe we thought, or maybe to get more aggressive with spray intervals with sulfur or and extend them out, right? And try to eventually eliminate one. Um, so it's that intimate time spent in the vineyard that really allows us to farm the wine out in the vineyard. And, you know, the other thing when, when people come to our winery, and if you come, you'll see, we have no fancy sorting equipment. And they, they say, well, where's your, John, where's your sorting table and your, you know, your vibrating screen? And um, we... Since 2006, we started field sorting all of our grapes. And what I mean by field sorting. When you're picking out. Well, not, at, not the day of the pick. Some people think that's what we mean. But we. You don't even pick during the day, though. No, we'll talk about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But more that my, my stagiaires, they come to work for this for harvest. Phoebe and myself, we go out five, six days before harvest, and we start cutting off fruit that has bee damage, 
birds, um, botrytis, aspergillus, things that th things that that will affect the the wine that ends up in the bottle. So you do your sorting on the vine, literally. You'll get yeah. off the vine what you don't want in the exactly. picking bucket. And and usually that takes what that looks like is like three passes actually before harvest. So usually about a week out, we'll do a big pass to get rid of most Is things. this a practice you saw in your past experiences or you figured out you wanted to or needed to do it? This, this is some things that I've seen in Burgundy. Okay. You know, that, that you know, people were like, what, the fruit's right in front of you. It's, it's lit up by the sun so you can see everything. There's nothing like looking at fruit under natural light. And so we, we go through this painstaking process, but what that means is the fruit comes to our winery and there's nothing to do. There's no sorting to do. Um, there's no need to like hover over a table. Um, and of course that's one way to do it. Here's a dumb question. Why don't more people do that? I think it's, it's kind of cost prohibitive. It's a cost thing. And it's also, it's, um, it's logistically challenging because um, what most people do uh, here kind of in the new world or, or California, which, I mean, I, you know, even Oregon or whatever, is that they, they, they want to slot people into roles, right? You're, you're working, you're a field worker, you're a tractor driver, you're a truck driver. The, the thing that we've always done is, and, and this is all based upon everything that's been going on in, in Burgundy for Right. A nothing. Long time. Nothing new. That it's it's not it's not uh, you know we're not reinventing the wheel here. Is that you know when I, I might go visit you know Denny Bachelet and he's like John just you know just text me and I'll get off the tractor. Right. Right. And um, <laughs> they're in the field. Like, they're I'm farmers. Not wait are... for you. Right. At the at the winery. I'll just come down in the car. Interesting. So we what we do is when we we hire people for harvest we say. Your role is every role. You will do everything. You will drive the truck. You will drive the forklift. You will go out and sample grapes. You will cut fruit off. You will, you know, go get donuts for the for Which the is what burgers. you wanted and did at your first internship. You didn't want to be tasked with, you know, just pump overs or one thing. Exactly. So you, you pass that along. And so we, yeah, our focus is on that. Um, and... You, you mentioned we we are very focused about the the fruit coming to the winery in with perfect integrity, meaning turgid berries, hard berries that are not broken, and give us an opportunity to choose to elect how we how we treat the fruit. And so, tell me, whole cluster, mostly yeah. or so. In regards to Pinot or Chardonnay? Well, I guess you have to answer for both. Yes. <laughs> Pinot tends to be more whole cluster, right? Yeah. So, I mean, so Chardonnay, we, we, we basically um, crush, uh, we break the berries um, on the stem. This is a very important uh, thing. The juice that comes out of those berries spills out over the rachis of the stem What's that? The rachis is the end of the stem where the berry attaches okay. to the stem. And this, this point, um, the, ju the juice running over that picks up um, 
uh, tannins, antioxidants for the juice. And uh, versus destemming, just so people know, where it doesn't have the exposure to the stem and what that can offer to the complexity of the wine, right? Exactly. Okay. And so the uh, fruit is loaded very quickly. It's, um, we, we, we pick everything at night. So usually the fruit is somewhere around 40 degrees when it gets to the winery. And we haul it in a refrigerated truck. So it's very cold. And these are significant steps. Yeah, we... You know, night picking only, refrigerated trucks. You know, you're going out of your way to make sure you're controlling everything. Yeah, and we want... um, The the most efficient thing is for for us to have a day that flows consistently day to day. So fruit arrives at usually 4 or 5 in the morning. We start processing at 6 or 6.30. Um, it's, It's a very swift process. And as soon as all the morning punch downs, pump overs, pressing is done, we immediately go out to the vineyard and start field sorting the next block. So we're usually there by lunch on the afternoon. And, you know, we get a good four or five hours out there. And then we go back to the winery and tidy up anything. Um, so back to the Chardonnay, we, this juice is pressed, goes to tank, allowed to naturally settle. We take it off its gross lees and it goes to uh, barrels anywhere from five to 15 years old and allowed to naturally ferment. Nothing's added to the wine. You're a minimalist. Yeah, I think I'm a minimalist. But I also, again, back to, I don't want anything to get in the way of what the vintage right. and the vineyard. Right. I mean, yeah. minimalist is like natural wine term. I mean, it's yeah. pretty vague, but you, you know, you don't like to intervene. Um, as far as all that. What's funny is I, I see you as a guy that doesn't like to intervene, but has an eye on a lot of things like how old the barrels are and temperature and, you know, when you want to pick. I mean, that list to me seems pretty long for right. a guy who, and then those are not interventional things. Those are just, you know, the right thing. Is that true? I mean, you're really, you have an obsession with the details. I have an obsession with the details because I, I try, I want the wines to be pure, transparent expressions. I, I don't want them to be marred by... Um, no fining, no filtering. None of that, but then even it, also just as important is microbial issues. You know, so you're microbial issues. Clean like clean bug? Yeah, like just don't want Brett in the wine, don't want other things, you know, that, you know, get a little geeky, you know, things like sexy names like pediococcus um but uh and we also the the barrels the barrels are another big thing in our winery we're you know when we bring new barrels into the winery um not not new barrels but new to us used barrels but new to saratas we soak them in a, a tartaric sulfur solution for one year oh really before you don't know where the hell they've been, but you we really know go. The, well, we know. Where yeah, but been. you don't yeah. know if the guy was bathing in it before he sold it to you. Yeah, exactly. But you really put it through your own. Uh, and then we run with, a bunch of analysis on it. And this is all to, and, and about 20% of the barrels that we bring in, we discard. So don't. you can imagine if we had included all those, those 20% that we didn't find positive attributes in would affect the wine, the taste, the smell, 
in a way that maybe we're not interested in. So I guess my point about your obsession to detail, we could probably spend a show just on the barrels <laughs> and that's not even, you know, so I'm going to, I'm going to check off, fall asleep. Yeah, I'm going to check <laughs> off the box that you're very much, uh, uh, in tune with that. All right. Let's talk a little specifically about Saratas wines. Um, let's get into, you know, we know where you do it, what you're doing, how you're doing it in the field and all that, but let's talk about the wines. Let's talk about how many different sites you farm, different varietals you're working with, which is not a lot. Um, and you're starting to make a lot of bottlings, you know, so tell me, you know, what's going on there. You're working with how many sites now currently? We work with 12 sites currently. Um, and we make about, uh, you know, anywhere from 3,500 to 4,000 cases a year. All in? All in. Okay. It's roughly split down the middle. That does have some vintage variation um, between Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, and then we make one Cabernet. Um, Did you make Cabernet at the beginning, or you added that on? We added Cabernet in 2012. So fairly recently compared. Yes. Why? You know, we never sought to make Cabernet. Um, but we, the year before, we had made a Chardonnay from the, the vineyard of Peter Martin Ray. And the following year, when I was walking with Peter, you know, he said, oh, we have this Cabernet vineyard down, down here. And, and I said, oh, you know, that's, that's nice of you to offer. But I said, we just don't make Cabernet. And um, he's like, no, no, you, sh you should come check it out. And so, you know, I went down there with him. It, it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's a few minute drive from where the Chardonnay's grown. They, they own quite a bit of the hillside there. And so we um, went down and I just saw these old vines, 100% Rixford clone, which is for many, many years, to my knowledge, was the, the, the majority clone in the Montebello at Ridge. It's changed a little bit because they've cloned Santa Cruz, right? Yep. Santa Ridge. Cruz, yep. notorious for making elegant, long-lasting Cabernets, a little bit different. Would you describe yours as that? You know, because there was a period of big, unctuous, fruity, high alcohol. There's a movement towards restraint. Where do you, how do you describe it? Yeah, I think it? our wine strikes a balance. It's, it's, not, um, it's not lean and anemic, um, but it it's definitely has some body to it, but it, it's not rich and unctuous. Right. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the clone that's there right it just doesn't lend itself to that so the cabernet presented itself you know you're yes. with the martin ray guys and he said hey i have this here and right you know it's you looked into it and it wasn't like hey phoebe you know let's make a cab in a few years um the, the property came and it was hard to pass by right it was hard to pass by and, and you know even if you make it nobody knows that you made it until you bottle it right if you don't tell anybody so it's a uh, well know. let's you know let's let's do the shameless plugs for a second um and i'm going to ask you at the end of the show if people want to know more about the wines the best place would be for them to go to the website that would be the best place to go and, and, uh, and also, give me the address it's uh ceritas wines plural c-e-r-i-t-a-s winesplural.com .com. and you can get more info on everything plus you could sign up for the mailing list is there a waiting list for the mailing list um there's there's not a waiting list for the mailing list we what we've what we've decided to do about two years ago was we 
we don't have a lot of wine to sell. Right. And so what we've done is a, we put together a t- what we call a tasting membership. It's one bottle of every wine that we make. You get um, supporting literature to tell you about the site, tell you about the winemaking from that area. Pretty in de- detailed information. We put that in the box. It comes in three shipments. Um, and then after that, we will give you an allocation. And um, so you if, ease them in there. Well, I would, would I like to <laughs> I, say I, mean, 12, I, I don't want to press you because you're a small winery with a lot of interests. So, I mean, you have yeah. to manage it. I know you don't want to, not the word offend, but you want to be available and make everyone happy. We, we do our best. Right. It, it it's not like easy. It. Um, but, you know, I think that the, why we, we turn to this tasting membership, and I, and I just want to point it out, is that, you know, we make 12 wines. It's a lot of wines. For a small overall output. Yeah, we have yeah. you know, 250, 325 Limit. cases of each wine. And the, what, what my hope is with the tasting membership, and it seems to be working this way, is that people will find the two or three or four, maybe, or one, that they really enjoy. And I encourage them to buy more of one that they like so that they can have one in the near term. And they can open a bottle in five years, maybe ten years. It's the way to do it. And um, and of course, if they if they want one bottle of something else, you, you know, then we, we can talk about it. But um, it it really allows people to experience our wines over time, rather than you know the the idea that someone's going to buy six bottles of twelve wines. I, it, that's a lot of wine. Yeah, so, and also maybe seller it and not drink it short term or drink it all short term. Right. You want that, you know, whole kind of stage, you know, taste it early on, have it available a little later on. I think that's the way to do it. And really bring bringing our customers, you know, our clients into our world, right? Because not all of them get the opportunity to travel to California right. and they obviously aren't going to spend 10 hours in the car with me driving around and look at vineyards. No. So... It's um, really try. We try to bring them out into our world and show them what what's in the bottle. The wine has become uh, a Psalm favorite, and it's at restaurants. Um, obviously, besides the mailing list, you make wines available to restaurants, right? I mean, you're on lists, major cities, coast to coast. I mean, tell me. The restaurant. So we, um, That's important to you, right? That it's at some restaurants? We, we want to be in restaurants. You know, all the wine is mostly sold to restaurants or on-premise. And uh, we're currently in eight states okay. here in the U.S. And one of the things that Phoebe and I wanted to do was um, we also wanted to distribute internationally. And... Uh, we did that because, um, first of all, there was there was interest in California wines, which is great. But we also more now than ever. You're feeling oh, more now than ever. Yes, and certain countries are more interested right. than others. But that is a for, good sign for us. It was uh, we we felt like we needed to play our role, whatever that is, to show what we thought were some of the the better wines from California in these, in these foreign markets. Um, and we're not the only ones that feel that way. And, you know, making wine, selling wine, it, you know, it, that, that has a, its own joys and, and challenges, but it's, it's really 
showing people what can be done in California yeah. and marketing the wines, you know, from the West Sonoma coast and Santa Cruz mountains that you, like showing that you have to show them something. You right. can't just talk all day about it. Um, I, I think that's important. Yeah. Um, we're not wrapping up right away, but we have a couple things we have to do. I have to subject you to our wine list, which is five questions. And we have a bottle of wine in front of us, which I want to taste and talk to you about. But we're in New York talking to John, and you were here because there's a tasting going on called West of the West, and it's basically a group of Western Sonoma growers. And the objective is, what, to, to introduce and show these wines, you know, to the New York consumer press trade right yeah so we're we're, we're going to be going to that tasting here in about an hour and you know we we do a seminar we try to educate people about the region and then give them an opportunity to taste you know three four or five wines from each winery from that region right um which again gives them a, a broad overview of not only the vineyards but also people's uh styles to, to winemaking, their approaches to winemaking. And I think one of the, the, the coolest things about it is it's really principle driven. So you're going to see owners, winemakers standing behind their table, right? And not a salesperson. Um, like you and Ted Lemon and all yeah, the other guys. Andy Pay and Andy, Ken Freeman. It's all about the Andy guys Smith on the ground. Wine. Yeah. They're on the ground for the tasting, which is, it's, it's not unique, but it's not common exactly you know and um yeah so we and we do this every other year in new york and uh um, by the time this airs it'll have passed but there's the organization has i think a website it's the yeah it's the west um west, west sonoma, sonoma coast vintners association right. and that site will tell you who are the members tell you about it you know what the uh drive and the mission is and of course the tasting next year all right john we're going to move on i'm going to subject you to our wine list uh, i got five questions don't dwell on them all right they're, okay. e they're easy first question is what are you drinking now what are you tasting what's in your fridge what's current what are you trying anything intriguing you i think uh we've been drinking a lot of champagne okay that's always a great answer <laughs> Um, we're particularly, you got a favorite love. Too? Well, uh, Agripart mineral. Okay. Um, I really love the wines from Jerome Prevost and, uh, you know, Marie Cortan. All great stuff. Yeah. The Cortan stuff's a great value. Yeah. What about non-bubbly? So non-bubbly, we've been, um, enjoying the wines from, uh, Pat Loop and Chablis. We have a... You know, a pretty good collection of wines from Dovisat and Ravenel, which we pull out from time to time. But as a, you know, a father of twins now, I, I tend to drink less. So Starting to age more. I'm getting older. That, Not that you, happens. the wines, because you yes. can't get to them. Well, both, I guess. <laughs> All right, do you have a favorite wine and food pairing? This is kind of the goofiest question on the list. But is there something that you see that you like that's just a great pairing? doesn't mean you eat it every week, every month. But, I and love, we have a rule on the show. You can't say champagne and oysters. Okay. Well, I wasn't going to say that. Good. But um, I, you know, Phoebe and I eat roast chicken. Four probably, nights a week. Twice a week. <laughs> twice a week. <laughs> yeah. And um, I love drinking 
a great bottle of Pinot Noir, either from Burgundy, you know, or California um, with roast chicken, especially lighter Pinot Noirs. I'm with you on that because I eat a lot of chicken. And when I looked at my cellar, I realized I have a lot of Pinot Noir. So So you're ready for the chicken. I'm very ready. Do you have a favorite wine restaurant and or bar? A place that has a good selection, good people, good knowledge. They know what they're doing. It could be by you. It could be New York. It could be in your travels. Just some. And I don't want you to be exclusive, like you left someone out or whatever. But who does it right? I really have been enjoying the list over at Racine. Pascaline. Yeah, Pascaline's there. Is a show favorite. Yeah. Um, Is they're doing a great job. Um, I was, uh, I ate at, uh, Momofuku Co. last night. Um, their list was Great quite list. beautiful. Um, and Arthur's there now, uh, kind of steering the ship, which is exciting. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, back where we are, I, I think, uh, Paul Einbund's The Morris has, uh, M-O-R-R-I-S? M-O-R-R-I-S? Yep. Okay. And, uh, he has a wonderful depth of like vintages it's not a big list right it's not it's not a small list list. it's just a very smart yeah smartly put together list all right those are good ones um do you have a favorite all-time wine i realize after asking this question so many times maybe it's more than one it turns out it's not always the most expensive or rare wine. It ties to an experience. Is there a wine that's a favorite or important to you? You know, not life-changing, but means something. Well, I, I think it's interesting. To, I think probably the most life-changing wine I ever had was 78 Jantes Derview. Okay. It's not, not a lot of people work get to, you know, yeah. try that. I, uh, I have one bottle left in the cellar. Okay. And unfortunately, I stare at it a lot. Um, and, but I really, a wine that like always consistently delivers for it for me is Rouleau. I specifically like um, Viroy and um, the uh, May Chabot. Great wines. Um, and, you know, and for reds, I, you know, the wines from De Monti, you know, um, right. Miton and Taipier, but um, that's 78 Jantes, whoa. Yeah, that's special. So if I, you're willing to sell your car, you can go get one. Right, that's what it boils <laughs> down to. Uh, use Volkswagen or that bottle of wine. Um, last question, and do your best to answer this. Recommend to me the best wine around 15, 20 bucks retail. And I always give my guests the same setup. My kids are in their 20s. They're going to dinner parties or parties. They can't bring a crappy bottle of wine for eight, nine, 10, 12 bucks, and they can't afford 35. So for 15, 20 bucks, give me a red, give me a white. It could be varietal, region, you know, you could say Muscadet. What, in your mind, what do you think are the best plays for that? I think probably in white, it's, um that's a tough question. Just um, I think uh, you know the the Thibaut Bourguignon wines uh, from Anjou. Okay. I think they're Anjou probably Anjou offers some value. Some Chenin Blanc. Yep. Um, great minerality. Great terroir. You expression. think they're in that twenty buckish range? I think they're like twenty five. Okay. Um, Give me and, a red. And then I would say I would go to Beaujolais. Agree. 
You could it's do a, the village stuff and you know um although the prices are creeping up they are they're getting popular up. but i think as a category there's the value and there's some good makers there um those are good ones we tell all our all our listeners that we post our guests answers on our social media um so we'll post your answers on uh, instagram and facebook um, before we wrap up the show we do the weekly wine sip where we get a chance to taste some wine and it made total sense um, to taste your wine so we're tasting the 2017 Ceritas Occidental Vineyard, uh, Pinot Noir, Sonoma Coast. I got to tell you, I'm on John's mailing list fairly recently. I've known about the wines and sat there and didn't pull the trigger. Realized I want these wines. So about a year after thinking about it, I got on the mailing list. And I think this is the most recent um, delivery, the 17. So just tell me a little more about this wine. So we're drinking the, like you said, the 2017 Occidental Vineyard. Um, we took over this vineyard in 2015. This is a famous vineyard. Right? Very famous vineyard on the coast. Uh, Steve Kissler pl planted it uh, around 25 years ago. Um, it went through a number of hands, and now we, we have a long-term uh, metage agreement uh, for this property. Explain uh, what metillage is. So a metillage uh, relationship with a vineyard is, is a French term. Uh, and the, the easiest way to say it is uh, it's like it's almost like sharecropping, but sharecropping with cash, not the crop itself. Got it. Um, so we, we farm it. Uh, it's three and a half acres. It's uh, up on a very famous road called Taylor Lane, up above the town of Occidental. The, the two vineyards that are touching it are also quite famous, uh, Tyriot and Suma. T-H-E-R-I-O-T? Uh, yeah, I think it's T-H-E-I-R-I-O-T. But it's spelled different than it sounds. Yes. What was the second one? And Suma, which is right. S-U-M-M-A. Right. Rivers um, Marie and Rivers a bunch Marie of guys do. William Selium. Selium, right. Made wine from there. Right. Um, so we're, we're surrounded by very pedigreed sites. Um, this site is about three miles from the ocean and south facing, which is important on this road because as you get closer to the ocean, south facing gives you an opportunity to ripen the fruit properly. Whereas the further inland you move, you want to be, in our opinion, on the north facing slopes because right. it's a little bit toastier. And um, we, uh, the soils here are a combination of blue schist and quartz, and there's a little bit of serpentine vein running through it. Uh, it's very low yielding, um, you know, somewhere around 1.2 to wow. 1.5 tons of the acre maximum. And uh, we do everything we possibly can every year to maximize the yields. It's a challenging location because it's, it's right in the face of the coastal influences. It's, right. There's nothing protecting it. Um, that's why you're there. And you that's you why like that there. exposure and that yes. challenge. All right, let's, um, let's evaluate it. Let's give it a little sniff and throw it over the tongue, and let's talk about it. So the color, it's, there's, it, 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 it's not dark, but there's some depth to the color here. Exactly. Right? <laughs> it's not a light-colored Pinot Noir. It's, it's, it's a nice, rich color, but it's not this dark brooding. So we'll start with that. How would you describe the color? The colors, there's a lot of depth of color here. Yep. The, the clone there, Calera, about 50% of the berries don't have seeds. 
So you get this intense ah. dark color, but um, you also at the same time have great natural acidity and great whole cluster potential. Wait, so let's go nose first. Yep. You're the expert. What do we get on the nose? So Occidental always has... Um, I have my notes. Yeah. I've had it before. Go ahead. Is, um, you know, it's, it's very spicy, like pencil shavings, um, kind of a floral element that I reminds get, me of like roses. I get rose petals, a little violet. Yes, I wrote a down. little bit of violet. What about fruit? Berries, red, dark? Dark fruit. Darker dark, than dark, redder, right? Yeah, like, um, you know, dark red raspberries. Um, you know, we're not getting the cranberry blood orange. No, you're not here. getting that crispy, crunchy red fruit for sure. So, um, you know, blackberry. All right, let's go mouthfeel. Definitely a medium full feel. You know, it's got nice body to it. Not not glycerin-y. Right. It's, it's the biggest wine that we make. It um, is pretty big. For us, yeah. And In a good way. I'm not, yeah. yeah. Of course. So, well, I mean, the nice thing, like you said, when people go on the mailing list, they look at one bottle or something. If, if this is the style they like, this is the designate that offers that. Exactly. You know, a little bigger and all of that. Um, all right, let's go palette. Do the nose descriptors translate to the palette? What do we get I on the palette? I think they do. Um, you know, we, we have this um, dark berries. You know, you get this, um, there's this lead pencil flavor that comes through. It's like the minerality. It's salty. I was just going to say, I get salinity. I yeah. don't know. Is that the influence of being right on the coast, you know, or three the, miles off? I think it's the soils and the cold, cold environment it's growing. Um, it's a very, very rocky site. Um, and you get the berries there, too. For sure, I get a little of the fruit. Yeah, and this, this wine was uh, vinified with 50% whole cluster. But you get the spice elements, but you don't get those aggressive tannins. Right. Definitely um, not. What would you pair? I, we, this is good with chicken, but what else is, uh, what's, what's a good pairing for this? You know, once in a while I, I allow myself to indulge in some like great Japanese fatty beef. Mm. Not all the time, but like you know. Like Akashi or Wagyu or something. Yeah, exactly. It'll you know, go A5. well with this particular <laughs> wine. Too. Or maybe the A5 goes well with it. But, um, yeah. um, but you know, I think it also, it, it could work well with, you know, dishes that are like heavy mushroom influence, right? Earthy. Earthy, um, st stewy things. Um, I think it's, it's a little too much for delicate fish. But um, Yeah, I think you could go with something else. With, you but, know, probably you know, one of your shards or even other wines. Like grilled mackerel. Which has some oil and body. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't always get a chance to ask people this, but did this wine come out the way you wanted? Do you like it? Is this the expression that you were looking for? For yes. this, because vintage is important to you. There's not a formula. We make right. wine every year this way. The vintage affects that. For the 17, for this vineyard, is this the wine you were looking for? Yeah, we, uh, you know, 17 was, was a, you know, it's kind of a challenging vintage um, at the end. You know, Weather. We had, we, had a, we had some warmth at the end of the year. Heat spikes? Or? Yeah, but in, and Occidental made it through that. 
Um, but uh, it's a, you know, we're happy with the wine. It's, I think it's exactly what I expected to come from the, the vineyard. You know, we did, we did tone back the, the whole cluster on all of our Pinot Noirs in 17 because we felt as we were sampling the vineyards that the, the flavors that were coming from the stems were not quite in pace with the flavors of the fruit. So it wasn't just, it was flavors. It wasn't just that the wine would become bigger. The flavor profile wasn't going where you wanted with all the... Yeah, when we were tasting the stems, we just felt like they, they, they were a little bit more aggressive than in years right. past. And so we dialed it back a little bit. Typically, this wine's getting somewhere around 70%. So one last thing on this wine. You said it's one of the bigger wines. Is that this vintage or the Occidental, um, as one of your showings, is always going to be a darker, bigger wine? I, I think it's going to be darker and bi- almost every year okay. because so- of these microscopic berries Got it. with you know, high color intensity. Which shows the diversity of, you know, your bottlings and the difference in the vineyards. Um, John, we got to wrap up. Spent over an hour here in New York. A nice Wednesday morning in New York. Um, If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at The Grape Nation. Uh, That's Sam at TheGrapeNation.com. Sam at TheGrapeNation.com. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. Follow us on Instagram at SBenRuby and the hashtag the grape nation on twitter at ben ruby and the hashtag the grape nation you could subscribe to our podcast on itunes stitcher and spotify as i said earlier we'll post john's wine list answers there's some good recos in there um i will post the weekly wine sip um i'll tell you exactly what we drank um and john i asked you earlier but let's tell people again if we want to find uh, Saratas, more information or social media, where can we go? I just go to the website. I'm uh, okay. My social media presence. We is talked lacking. about that earlier. He's a bit <laughs> of a luddite, but that's okay. I may be able to change him a little. All right. I want to thank our guest, John Raytech. John is the co-owner and winemaker at Saratas Winery in Healdsburg, California. Thanks to our engineers and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to the Grape Nation. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.